0: welcome to another distinct nostalgia by mim brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mersey care nhs foundation trust staying well staying home Distinct Nostalgia's meeting one of the young emerging British TV stars of the 1990s, who managed to make it big in the United States. Jack Davenport, who many also remember in the comedy Coupling, first rose to fame as Miles in the cult BBC2 drama This Life. The hit series, which first burst onto our screens in 1996, was hugely popular among 20-somethings of the day, and it catapulted Jack to huge stardom and a major career career in Hollywood. Jack's appeared in a plethora of movies, including the Pirates of the Caribbean films, Kingsman, The Secret Service, Guernica, A United Kingdom, and his favourite, the psychological thriller, The Talented Mr Ripley, alongside a stellar cast, Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ashley's been having a long chat to Jack from his home in Connecticut about the work that seems the most special to him, This Life and Ripley. It's a good one, this, and quite a queue, actually. Enjoy.
1: Great to talk to you, Jack. I've followed your career all the way through from this life through to today, so we'll major probably on this life because that's the thing most a lot of people remember uh probably here in the uk and and certainly for people listening to distinct nostalgia you know that's the the thing they'll probably get the most
2: nostalgic about it, it's terrifying to think it's now that show has now entered the realm of deep nostalgia but it's true yeah.
1: it is it's <laughs> true, it is true and you're talking about 1996 aren't we and we've already spoken to jason and i spoke to uh, uh Danielle about uh about this life and of course both of them say that you're all sort of, you're all basically wet behind the he- ears when it first started. You didn't really know what you were.
2: Oh, I, I, soaking behind the ears. I mean, we'd, no, none of us had done anything, really. Um, it was, I mean, n- none more so than myself and probably Andy. We were the youngest. And, you know, I'd literally just left university and Andy had just left RADA. So we were like, yeah, I mean, it was it was the earliest of early days for us, for sure.
1: But I gather one of your first jobs was actually starring in a play and uh, and it had some connection with June Brown, you were telling me before, uh, before we started recording.
2: Um, the very first job I ever did, ever, I was 18 and I was in a theatre production of Hamlet on a, on a tour and her husband, long since deceased was in it and when we played Brighton she came to see it and we, we were all like in some pub near the theatre after the show and it was a pub with a very sort of theatrical interior next time we speak to June she, is, she won't remember this but she was sitting in a corner table and we literally we were so excited that June Brown was in the pub we lined up it was like meeting the Queen And we all had a little separate audience with the Queen. And she was very lovely. And you can tell her that 18-year-old me has never forgotten it. (laughs) Um, And then I sort of, you know, went to college. So I stopped working as a professional for a few years. And I'd done a tiny part in a John Cleese movie. I mean, it essentially is a glorified extra, really, in uh, that movie he made called Fierce Creatures, which was sort of the the not exactly sequel to *Fish Called Wanda. But beyond that, nothing. And so it was Yeah, it was a pretty steep learning curve because we all had a lot to do and we were terrified. <laughs> None of you knew each other, had you? None of you actually? No, no.
1: No, exactly. No. So it was all uh, in the event. And did you know what it was about? Because obviously it was, well, now looking back, we know how groundbreaking it was in different ways. But what did you know
2: about it at the time? All I knew was that it was, you know, on paper, it looked like something that you might have already seen before in the sense that it was like urban, white-collar professionals, living and loving and working and all of that stuff. But then I remember in one of the meetings, I I mean, I had to audition so many times, it's mortifying. Um, They were clearly not sure about me. But at one point or other, Tony Garnett, the the executive producer and kind of presiding godlike figure over the whole thing they made it very clear that you know one of the things was you would never see us in court or arguing cases or you know like doing all that stuff doing doing the procedural side of all of it and and that really got my attention because I was like oh so it's a legal drama where no one's really practicing any law so then i was like well what's it going to be about then and then as we started to do it what I realised was that and this sounds pejorative but it's not meant to in some ways it wasn't about anything at all it was about do you know what I mean it was about the minutiae of being young, sharing a living space making tons of bad decisions in very quick succession and it was sort of by design, not shapeless, but like there weren't the there weren't the sort of traditional like big narrative engines at all. You know, we spent weeks arguing about who ate somebody's yogurt, for example, um, and and none of us. I'm sure Jason and Daniela, when you spoke to them, uh, I'm sure they didn't pretend that they could have conceived of how it w- kind of embedded itself in. The nation's psyche for a brief window. I mean, people obviously move on with these things, but here we are, quarter of a century later, still talking about it. But, but it did seem unusually non—what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of idiosyncratic. Uh, plus, the dialogue was killer. Like it was—it sounded like people talking, which doesn't happen especially often when you're writing younger people you know it's always reaching to like make a point about some wider so you know and none of that was happening and and you know w- with experience as an actor which we did not have at that point you know you get more comfortable with improvising and going a bit off the reservation and seeing what might or might not work we were not ready to do anything like that when we were shooting that show and so what i'm saying is is that what we said was what was written and it's an absolute testament to the quality of the writing that it was as came off as like naturalistic as it did because people can't write that naturalistically very often so there you go and the other thing you
1: mentioned there about the fact that there was no—I uh, mean, they were lawyers, but it could—they could have been accountants, couldn't they? They could have been uh, any other, yeah, yeah, any any other sort of profession. What it was for somebody of my age—I think I'm roughly the same age as you. I was born in 1972. I think you were born in 1973. Yeah, 73, so, yeah, yeah, roughly roughly the same age. I think what what it did really, what it what it was doing, and it and, and actually, a lot of people just stumbled across it because it wasn't promoted well at the beginning. But what it was doing was it was reflecting young people's lives at the time generally in terms of what people were up to that's what it was about you know
2: um and, and look i don't think anyone uh at the bbc or world productions end of things could ever pretend that that lack of promotion that you refer to uh was by much of design but in terms of what you've just said in terms of how people discovered it with you know the benefit of 2020 hindsight, the lack of initial promotion was in many ways the ma- the secret source that made that show such a hit, because people did not have it jammed down their throats, and it felt like something that you discovered. I mean, I've I've only found this out by having conversations over the decades with people like yourself, and and a, and a sort of. Constant theme has always been. It felt like my secret little thing, and it and it was ours. And there weren't massive billboards going, you know, the show that defines youth and the. It was none of that shit. It didn't make any claims to be anything really, and I think that ultimately would really. And then, so couple the lack of promotion with the fact that nobody watched the first season. Nobody. But then we got recommissioned, and then what they did was they re-ran the first season at the same time as the second season, so, and they had repeats. So we were on like four times a week, almost like soap-like in a way. And so it kind of gathered its own momentum, but it was all, like most things in show business, it was all an accident, really. You know, um, there there wasn't someone going, yeah, if we just sort of just get it out there and say nothing like that's no one's idea of a promotional strategy but it's how it worked out but in we weirdly you know it's it's part of the reason why we're still talking about it now i think and we'll talk a bit later on about what it did for you all because i think it
1: you know helped all of your careers didn't it in many oh, ways yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely um What were you told, we'll talk about your character in a minute, but what were you told about how they were going to actually structure it and film it? Because, of course, that was different, wasn't it? That was groundbreaking at the time. It
2: was. They didn't tell us much, but, again, with years of subsequent experience, I've been able to kind of retroactively figure out what they were up to. And it's pretty clever, actually, because... So on, an, um, on a normal, quote-unquote, TV show, you're to make de- be making decent progress, you should be shooting, like, five to six pages, maybe seven, six pages a day, right? That's pretty standard. On This Life, we shot, like, 14 a day, which is, like, the kind of pace on, like, a daytime soap opera in the States where they have it's all studio lighting and they had multiple cameras and it you know and you can knock off that much material in a day but we had one camera and we were shooting it like a traditional television drama so what they did was they would we'd rehearse the scene and then the 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 director of photography and the opera the, the camera operator on that show They're always, you know, one of the most important people there on this life. They were even more important because... So they'd watch the rehearsal and then they'd sort of see where we would stand and what we were doing. And then they'd set up the camera in a position that would take in as much of the action as possible in one go, right? And And again, traditionally, shoot the wide shot. But then rather than move the camera, because by moving the camera, you've got to adjust all the lights. We didn't have time for that. So then they move in closer and closer and closer off that one axis, right? And they get what they can, and someone gets a lovely close-up that's just their face. But the person whose back was to the camera when they did the rehearsal was fucked, really. And we used to joke about how, you know, like some of our biggest emotional scenes, you just see the back of our ear, because that was how it was... But... So we shoot... We get closer and closer and closer. By this time... The camera operator... Has... Shot the scene... Six times. So he really, really knows... What the action is... And sometimes the kind of extraneous detail... Like... I might put my cup down... Or whatever it is. And then... When it was all done... They'd do a take... Where literally... He would do that signature thing... Where he'd wobble about and you know the camera would whip over and you know there would be some you know something on a counter or a hand doing this or whatever it was and this is where the trick trickery part comes in when you're editing if you cut into that shot where it's moving around and then you cut back out it feels like you've moved around the room but you haven't you've so you've shot the whole scene off one axis But that's the only way, if you've got one camera, that you can shoot 14 pages a day. And so it became the kind of house style through expediency, basically. And it also, of course, probably by design, I'm sure they had planned it this way in some way, that wobbliness gave it a kind of, Roar! it uh, ro- i mean look i have not seen an episode of this life for 25 years i don't i don't know if it i'm sure it's pretty feels pretty dated at this point but at the time i think it probably felt you know it's like with costume drama as soon as you go handheld and it's it completely changes the feel of it And this was our way of doing that, but it was really more to do with the fact that how do we shoot uh, roughly twice as much as the average television drama uh, does in a day? And, I mean, that's how we got a second season without anybody watching the first one, because it was cheap as chips to make. Um, and, And so that's why. There you go. That's a long answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did it have any... Uh, I mean, what did that mean for the
2: actors, though? I mean,
1: obviously, you mentioned that there were various bits where you'd be an- maybe a bit annoyed that, you know, you're...
2: know you know what, but that's the thing. Uh, we weren't really annoyed. We were so excited to be working, and we were so excited to have such great parts. You know, it was like we were well aware that for people of our age which is like our early to mid-twenties, with this kind of material, we were like, if you want to us to do it with a bag over our heads, we'll do it. We don't care. And, and so it was more after the fact, because, of course, at the time, we all watched it with the rest of you, because we, like, we were, like, really excited. We were like, shit, we're on TV. Who, who'd have thought it? And so uh, over time, you became aware that occasionally you 'd have these moments because you 're not really aware of it in in the moment you 're just trying to play the scene, uh, and then you'd be like, "Oh wow that's that scene where I broke up with blah 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 and I you know I managed to like squeeze a couple of tears out, but oh, it's the back of my neck or whatever It was also lit. Realistically, as well, wasn't it? In the sense of it was, you know, it, was how re- it felt real
1: in the sense, you know, a lot of programmes are overlit, you know, Emmerdale yeah. is really overlit, you know what I mean?
2: That wasn't, was mm. it? Well, and that's exactly so to what I was saying about daytime soap operas. Yeah, those shows are really overlit because the only way something like Emmerdale or EastEnders or whatever can get through all that stuff so quickly is most of the time they're in a studio. We weren't in a, the first season, we were in. a a, a terrace of old Victorian houses and, like, getting the fucking dolly up and down the stairs. I mean, it wasn't easy, but also, you know, like, the lamp on the table, they'd use that for lighting, so there were these pools of light and, you know, you would disappear into the darkness like people do in Underlit... And it was... And so I think all of those things had an unconscious effect on the audience because, you know, it felt... um, Authentic, you know. you know, yeah, no, absolutely. I spoke to the other day, I was talking to James Wilby, um,
1: oh, yeah. Who, yeah. who was in, of course, uh, his, his breakthrough film was Morris, and yeah, yeah. um, and he was talking to me about how all of that was lit in candlelight basically, um, mm-hmm. to make it really authentic, and it did, it worked, you know, it works really well. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, classic film, um, so yeah, so let's talk about Miles then. So, <laughs> what did you, um, I mean. Wh- did he evolve, or did you know roughly what he was going to be like? I mean, he was a bit of a chauvinistic pig, really, wasn't he? We'll be back after a quick break. But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel yeah. me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to
3: the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So, do. Do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? you mean, yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm y'all trying, yeah, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm, trying, oh, I'm, trying yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. We all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We gonna have this like, bro, Me and my man, like me and my man, Kyle. We be like, I don't know. We
0: play, we play with this
2: <laughs> don't shit. With shit. I ain't gonna lie We play with this shit right now for, for a lie. Don't play with it. Take that shit serious. It was a, he was a lot of different kinds of pigs. If you think about it, um, I, I mean, I'll be honest. As an actor, um, to the, the opportunity to play someone so um, uh, unapologetically unreconstructed is uh, was super fun because he was such a dickhead, really, um, and and like leaning into his, you know, his essential douchebagginess was fun and and again one of the things I think that the show was so smart about was that no I didn't go through some road to Damascus conversion where suddenly I, I became less homophobic and probably a little. I mean the, the homophobia alone was pretty I mean there's a line I say to Warren I've never forgotten it Uh, where I'm like I can't believe I had to say that out loud on television but it was it was realistic you know because I know because I went to those sorts of schools that you know some of those you know British public schools are some of the most homophobic environments there are And people come out of the other end of that with those kinds of attitudes. So why pretend otherwise? You know, um, and in a way, it was like... But at the same time, the fact that he was living with Egg and... Like, Egg's his best friend, and Millie, you know, he's good friend. You know, it's like he wasn't all terrible. So, you know, I was very grateful for the fact they didn't... um, try to you know make him a better better more rounded person who learned from his mistakes i mean look if if any responsible television drama really stuck to its guns it would be to reiterate the point that people generally don't change right um and and so if i i was quite in inside i was kind of a bit kind of gleeful that I was, you know, getting to just be this really kind of, it's quite fun to do that. Um, and, and and the show, you know, the show benefited from having a character that was like that too. Um, because in that regard, you know, uh, the one thing this life did, I think, by kind of stealth in a way was, it was a bit of a kind of rainbow nation, you know, all races, uh, sexualities, you name it, all packed into one little Petri dish and, you know, li- and, and see what happens. And in some ways, the, the, the existence of that house with those kinds of people in it is somewhat improbable, but it allowed for interesting drama as a result.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it's very interesting. I mean, I've, I'm, you know, I'm bisexual. Um, I watched it. I, I found uh, Warren's character, you know, Jason's character as Warren was, for me, was was a sea change in terms of, you know, this was long before Queer as Folk and things like that, I remember. It really was. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was fantastic. But what I liked about it, really, um, if I'm being honest, is... And, and Miles did change a bit over time. He, 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 he mellowed here and there. But yeah. what was really interesting about it was, and, and this never really gets tackled in soaps and things, is the fact that the straight and the gay or gay bi worlds or bisexuality really isn't looked at by anybody still, to be honest. But that's another another story, another topic. But um, the, the straight and gay, gay worlds are actually quite different, in a way, in the terms of, you know, Miles, um, for me was like several people in my family when it came to you know they 'd often be they could talk on the surface about being people being gay, but they they, they didn 't really like the detail if you know what i mean and it was, it was quite they found it quite hard and, and that what was, what was interesting was that that sort of contrast between warren 's character coming in and being obviously quite quite nervous at first but then become, be turning into himself and and whatever yeah, yeah. and your character. Um, and the, the 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 clashes between the different types of I mean I mean Egg wasn't bothered about anything was he? He was just no. nothing bothered him. Things bothered your character, but what was really weird was that you you know uh, Warren Warren was was busy being you know enjoying himself and having lots of sex and God knows what.
2: And your character was the same, really. You were actually very similar, weren't you? You know what I mean? Yeah, we 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 were. And just as a side note, I mean it merits further. Um, uh, acknowledgement what you just said about what Jason did with that character because truly, you know, the sort of intelligence and sensitivity and, you know, it's not an accident that the entire show starts with Warren. <laughs> it's not an accident. It could have been any one of those characters and they chose that one in that setting. And it's it, it's important. It sets the tone and and... He did such a beautiful job. And uh, again, over the years, more than anything, the conversations I've had with people in the street who want, you know, because God knows they've been happening for a while now, the ones that I most remember most clearly and most fondly are the ones of people who are gay and they were like, that character meant so much to me and helped me so much in my own, you know, whether it was coming out to their families or whatever it was. And, and I do think, in many ways, that's the sort of, that's the real achievement of this life. If, if a television show is, could ever be said, I mean, it's a TV show, but to have, like, real social input, meaningful input, i think it's that and i think that's mainly thanks to jason hughes i, th- I you know it, he it's like he's the emotional anchor of the entire show really if you ask me yeah I and mean, i think i think you're right i mean anna as well i mean there's a there's an, an... anna's but anna's, di- anna's di- it's different it's anna, she she's just the she's just the most interesting character because you know a daniella was brilliant and b the writers like writing her more than anyone so, and rightly so, um, you know, because that's, from a feminist perspective, there's a, you know, there's a whole discussion to be had about Anna and about, you know, how, like, female desire was depicted. I mean, that was pretty new. Not anymore. I mean, it seems so quaint now to that, that you know, that either of those characters could be seen as, like, groundbreaking. But at the time, uh, it was it was a big deal. And
1: just going back to, to, to we'll talk about anime, but just going back to Jay, Jason and, and that side of the thing, because so, so Miles got sort of slowly but surely used to him being around and what was going on, and then, of course, he'd only got, he got used to that, but then Ferdy arrived, and Ferdy really annoyed Miles, didn't, didn't he? There's, well,
2: I think Ferdy's bisexuality is what most annoyed him, because he had that kind of tedious, like, unreconstructed het thing of going, well, it's just greedy, make up your mind, sort of thing. Um, And also, rather brilliantly, you know, the writers wrote it in a way that Ferdy really messed with his head. And rightly so, because Miles was being, as usual, a dick about it. You know, I don't need to relive the experience of having to dance naked in a shower, singing along to Sunita so that he could walk in on me but it was this it was the kind of comeuppance the character deserved that's for sure the world does not need to see me do that ever again ever ever ever
0: distinct nostalgia is produced by mim and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on patreon every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button thank you
3: Three men, one sketch show. Not enough time. What are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm just recording our new promo for Distinct Comedy. What's with the voice? I, I, you know, I just wanted to make it all big and exciting. Build up the tension. Build the tension for what? For listening.
0: It's a sketch show, not a blockbuster film. You just need to say something like, "Hey, we're the imaginary people. Listen to our sketch show on Distinct Comedy. You might like it if you're into that kind of thing."
3: huh oh yeah yeah that's all right actually oh well you better be quick before the time runs out the imaginary people coming soon
1: to distinct comedy listen wherever you get your podcasts and at DistinctNostalgia.com.
3: as well as amazing tv and film nostalgia this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge
0: to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, skippy, skippy the bush kangaroo, is all I can remember now. Yeah, well, that yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that.
3: The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you.
0: Prisoner cell block... Cell so block B. Mm. Prisoner cell block H. Oh!
3: Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com.
0: Have a go at three British films, just have a guess.
1: Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Khyber. No, this is rubbish, I'm sorry. No, I don't know. (laughs) They're not bad
3: attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz.
0: What kind of programme was The Smoking Room?
2: Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't no. know if I can
3: accept that. Returns in October. That's some of the cracker, isn't it? They always are. <laughs> Only here.
1: So, Miles character. I mean, he was he was headstrong. He was he was a sort of you know, he, he, if you just looking at that show, you'd think he was the strongest character in a way. He wasn't, but you think of it you, just on the surface. But he wasn't, was he? He was he was quite a vulnerable. Character. He was,
2: and uh, he was very vulnerable. And, you know, and all that bluff and bluster, it, it, you know, that's the front that a lot of ex-public school boys, quite honestly, put up. You know, it's, in many ways, that's the whole, that's the whole nature of the project of the British public school, It's to kind of, like, emotionally cauterise these young men so that they realise that feelings cause problems and then they can proceed in the world and uh of course that really doesn't help and so you're absolutely right and again that's honestly like one of the things that i enjoyed playing around with so much was that i did go to those schools and so i i understood the turf that being said i grew up in a in a in a very artistic environment because of my own family so i you know i could sort of play both sides of the fence i suppose but yes having the opportunity and again through basically good writing i can claim no real credit here to like reveal the sort of you know frightened little boy really that was not very close to the surface of this guy was really fun and uh and you know and and it was one of the things it, in terms of my own little part of this of the whole of that show which was probably in turn, I mean, as I say, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, we were flying by the seat of our pants. We had no experience, no technique, nothing. So it was all kind of like, well, oh, you know, I'm, this is, I'm going to do this now. Um, and it's because it was anchored by such great writing that, you know, people read, uh, you know, you, you were the audience, you said it, yes. it. I think it did come across that, he was not the, 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 all the swagger was hiding something much more interesting, really. Well, we'll talk
1: about his relationship with Anna in a moment, but let's just talk a little bit about his, his friend, his best friend, Egg, because of course, Egg showed another side to things. You know, people will have been growing up at around that time, the 20s, who have, who have gone down the career path and then decided actually there are other things they really want to do. And Egg, had a go at that he decided he didn't want to do the lawyer thing and really wanted to write and all the rest of it so so their their friendship was was a real contrast there wasn't it and and, you know did was miles frustrated
2: with his friend or what i i I mean look i think i think really like what the thing that reflects best on miles because there's you know there's a lot to there's a lot to uh, criticize about miles is frankly his friendship with egg it's like it's that he had become incredibly close to this person who shared nothing of his background, and and I think in some ways, uh, you know, what some people saw in Egg is like sort of directionlessness. Not that's a lot of nessnesses. Um, in some ways, you know, you can call it. You could call him a bit of a seeker or a bit. Of, you know, I mean, what he just. And I, I imagine that Miles was probably secretly a bit admiring of that. You know, it's like you know, ex public schoolboy becomes barrister is not exactly, you know, throwing off the chains of uh, of predictability, is it? Um, so yeah, uh, I I I, th- I think I think he was. I mean, I think and I think the writing kind of. And also, in a selfish way, because they wrote it this way, you know, when egg's really floating in space in the story, after 12 hours in the office, it's nice for Mars to come home and have someone to drink beer and get high with. I mean, you know, who's? It's like, it's like we're still students. So uh, I, Mars thought about himself more often than not, so I don't know how uh, generous... I should be about his uh, enjoyment of eggs, but but egg egg. When
1: it came to anything controversial or something that Miles wasn't happy with, egg sort of helped to temper Miles a bit, didn't he? Because egg was it never actually... egg was never bothered about anything, was he? Really, basically...
2: not really. And 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 again, you know, for dramatic purposes, you needed a character who could do that. Um, and you know, and again, it's. I mean, to, you know, talk about nostalgia, but you know, I've now known these people for nearly half my life and you know one of the things about Andy is is the directionlessness aside because obviously Andy's done quite well for himself over the years he is that guy he is one of the nicest warmest most generous people I will ever know you know he not only was he the best man at my fake television wedding he was the best man at my actual wedding. Um, so, uh, you know, um, and it was sort of, you know, we were, the show was mining that side of Andy really. Um, and, and again, that sort of, that does make me, you know, I, it was, that made it so much of the making of the show, such a happy experience for me because I got to hang out with this lovely guy and just sort of pretend we'd been friends forever. It's not a bad way to earn a living. <laughs> uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk then a little bit about your relationship, Miles's relationship with Anna. This on and off sort of relationship. Yes. He was, she was determined to puncture his ego a bit, wasn't she? But she was also determined to sort of, you know, seduce him as well at some point, kind of thing. Tell us a bit about that and, and how it sort of came about and how you how you felt about. It. I mean, she's a brilliant actress, so tell us a bit about that.
2: I mean, look, there's. There's a lot already been said about that relationship. Uh, You're absolutely right. You know, when on on a few occasions during my so-called career, I have had the privilege of like being in the room when exactly the right actor meets exactly the right part happens less often than you'd hope. Casting is really difficult, right? And in that instance, that happened and a lot of, and, you know, most of the time it was just, it was just so fun to play because it was like almost everything my character said, her character would just call bullshit on it every time. And then you'd, off you'd go. And it was, you know, just a kind of surf around in those waters and, um, And also have, again, I mean, it's not that unusual, but I suppose in a sustained way, it was a bit unusual for the time. You know, you have this, like, very, you know, white, middle-class, male, privileged guy just getting constantly called out by you know a, a a girl from I guess Glasgow from a very different background from him and you get to see how quickly he really likes it because he knows how much of it is bullshit you know it's like she calls it and he's like you're right you're right I'm full of shit and 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 I think you know the 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 interesting thing about that relationship is that from that they they become mutually it's sort of entranced with each other probably ultimately destructively but it made for good television
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it was, it was it was it was great it was great it was a you know it was a real on and on off thing and it was also nice when well, we mentioned um Jason, of course, uh, is from Wales, and Anna is from Scotland. And actually, in a way, when you think back, there weren't actually that many Welsh or Scottish no. voices on TV at all. You know?
2: No, I mean there, there were, but there, but it, it but I know what you mean. Um, I, well, there certainly weren't many gay Welsh voices. That's for damn sure. Uh, and there and there probably weren't that many feisty, empowered. I, probably not. Um, obviously everything's changed so much for the better in that regard and even more so today and rightly so um but i yeah i i guess it was quite, i mean look there were other things about the character that were and we've touched on them a bit that were sort of um genre defying or whatever uh and and you know a lot of it and this and this is somewhat a link to Anna's relationship with Mars was, you know, the way female desire was presented. She was like, I want that, and I'm going to go for that, or I don't want that. And in some ways, it was admirable. And in other ways, you saw how it kind of messed her up a bit. But it was unapologetic. and And also, it was sort of like, you know, traditionally in those sorts of shows, my character would be the one that just you know roams over the savannah, you know, killing and fucking as you know as he goes. And it was it was different. That power was, you know, I'm the one who ends up you know domesticated by the end of it. You know, she's she's still a wild animal. She
1: well, um, she she in the one I remember all, always is when she uh, she seduced. um
2: John Shepard
1: John Shepard John, Shep- John no there's the, that the dad but the John Shepard's character
2: Oh yeah I forgot she, she she basically seduced everybody
1: And and he was he was eating alive really with that and he was he fell fa- he fell in love with her overnight and of course she didn't want anything to do with it <laughs>
2: so. Yes that was quite good because he was that character was so cocky and then suddenly he was just like this sort of uh m- mooning lapdog uh it was good yeah I forgot about that and then, of course, as you say,
1: there was the, the when he when when she ended up uh, going off with with Eggs uh, Dad, um, which I, when I spoke to Daniella, she said that she was she was disappointed because she thought it was going to be George Clooney or somebody, and uh, the actor was great. She said, but she says well, it wasn't George Clooney. Fair enough. <laughs> um, the show obviously tackled sex in all its uh, glory. It tackled drugs in all its glory, drinking, all the rest of it. Um, you know and i suppose in that sense it was groundbreaking in another way wasn't it and in in a way i don't know what it's like in america now but actually over here we've we've probably in certain areas we started to be a little bit more conservative with our our sort of um portrayal of things like that so you know i wonder if actually that no holes bard sort of way in which this life was was done at that time whether or not we'll ever get that again really in a way combined together i
2: should think so i mean you know there are so many platforms now. You know, uh, uh, the, the, and you know, it, it's it's almost quaint if you think about it. Uh, how taboo busting, ha ha! The show apparently, you know, seemed to be because now it's like, I mean, not. I I, I don't think so. I think I think. You know, I I mean, you're quite right to say that the reactionary forces of all sorts of things are worryingly uh, sweeping the globe, it would appear. But I... I I don't know. I don't think we're headed for The Handmaid's Tale quite yet. Um, I mean, I hope not. Um, But I... (sighs) I think it's you know it's in and of its time and and part of what gives it meaning to people from that time is is the things we've discussed, which is that it i mean I, I've said this a million times about the show but it's in terms of what your question it's like the the thing that was genuinely uh groundbreaking and, and you know with a capital g perhaps is in shows about young people pinballing around and making lots of bad decisions on television up to the point of that show, and bear in mind, it's also like the mid-90s, so we're still deep in uh, AIDS paranoia and all of that stuff. It's like, if you slept around, you died, if you took drugs, you overdosed. Like, it, there was a sort of moral component to all of these things. It's like, if you do these things, bad things will happen to you. Well, we all know, whilst that's a possibility, also, often, people just have a really good time. And and that's... And whether, you know, one's own moral position about these things, make that makes you uncomfortable, it's the truth. It's a, just a fact, you know... Um, and I think people really responded to that. they responded to the lack of um, a sort of hectoring moral framework which so much of television in particular cinema less so you know te- of course now television is like the is like the the much more daring playground than movies, because un- unless you're wearing, you know, a superhero costume, you can't make a movie these days. But back then, it was different. Uh, and and so, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think it's not a lack of morality. It was more like, if anything, if I'm honest, I th- felt it was like moral clarity, uh, truly. It was like, who are we kidding here? It's, it's it's ridiculous to pretend that if a young person does this thing or this thing, which they're going to do, because, you know, we all want to try everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I said at the beginning, you
2: know, it just felt,
1: for those of us around at the time of that similar age, that it was a reflection of... Of us, and that was that. That was very, very, very refreshing, and I think it did lead to other things. I think other things changed. You know, some of the soaps altered in terms of the way they portrayed characters and things like that. Now, you came back and did it. You came back and did a reunion ten years later.
2: Yeah
1: how How was that for you?
2: As an experience, it was utterly delightful. Uh, You know, from a completely selfish point of view. I think all of us, but speaking for myself, I was like, "What a laugh! Um, I get to spend another month with all these people again, and just play these characters just one more time." And, but I also, by that time, had had enough experience where I was like, "And you know what's going to happen? It's going to get shat on from a great height." Because people, because it means so much to people, it's going to be by de- definition disappointing. Why? Because it's a one-off, and in a one-off, there have to be lots of there has to be lots of plot and they have, you know and resolution and this and that all the things that the te- that the series didn't traffic in, and, um, and you might have muted yourself. Um, uh, maybe I am muting myself to
1: make sure it doesn't
2: come oh I now. see I'm sorry um you're doing that very well um so all the things the show didn't traffic in or did traffic in to begin with doing something that's a 90 minute film where stuff has to happen was going people were going to go and, and you know and guess what it came out and people were like well it wasn't like the show and I'm like no shit it wasn't like the show what did you think it was going to be um but I was like, I, I mean, in my son's bedroom in New York, there I have a. There is a photo. I don't have. I really don't have any pictures of myself doing my job around the house. It's not a thing I do, right? But I've got one picture, and it's in his room, and it's me and Andy and Jason sitting on some steps when we were shooting that thing, and. Uh, and and that's why I did it. I was like, I you know, uh, not I wasn't doing it for the for you guys. <laughs> I was doing it for me. Um, and and actually, to be honest, I thought it was kind of a good script. <laughs> I thought I, I thought these characters were all quite plausibly um, these people. At the, you know, at this point. And I thought Amy did a bit of a bang up job. But I also knew we were just sticking our heads in the lion's mouth in terms of, I mean, look, I could care less, honestly, what people felt about it. It, it, I've never done a job for more selfish reasons in my life. Um, And I make no apology for it. (laughs) Now,
1: um, it obviously, I think I I can safely say this, can't I really, that that... Program, doing that programme changed all of your lives, really, didn't you?
2: Completely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, look, first of all, uh, there's only a couple of other things that I've done in the subsequent 25 years that people still want to have conversations with me about because of the... Right? It's a rare thing. To be in anything that that has such a long term impact on the audience, right? And of course, for all of us, because we were, you know, we were young. Like, talk about a break. I mean, um, it. You know, like there was this weird moment as well, like in the second season, where you know, like we it was a the show was a thing at this point and then this thing that you know does happen in our business where if you're the hot young things in the hot show suddenly you just get invited to everything by people you've never met before and will never meet again and we were all collectively we're like i remember there was like one night we all ended up we were all in richard branson's house for no reason right um being given champagne and it was like what the fuck is happening um and and there were award ceremonies and there was this and there was that but in terms of like being in a shop window i'd say all of us it gave us like a a a booster rocket that lasted for a a decade i mean past 10 years it's like you have to kind of... I mean, I'm always happy to talk about this life for sentimental reasons, really. Um, but... I... I I wouldn't be very comfortable talking about any of the dozens of other things I've done subsequently years and years after the event, because, you know, it's, it, it's just it's just film and TV. I mean they're, they're, they're important to people but it's like i'm not I'm not one for like sifting through my back catalog and being like oh you remember when I you know that, that that whole makes me thing makes me feel very uncomfortable but but it was such a um formative experience for us all it truly it was like it was like college it was like being at college again. <laughs> Uh, but we were, but we were professionals, so called, for the first time in our lives, and 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 boy, we well, did it. I mean, we owe, you know, we owe Amy, we owe Tony, we owe Jane Fallon, we owe Sam Miller. I, I, I cannot tell you. Well, I started watching um, "I May Destroy You" um, the other day, the Michaela Cole thing, which. Our original director of This Life, Sam Miller, is the director of, and I was watching it, and I was like, "Way to go, Sam! You've done it again." You know, it was—it's a very This Lifey feeling show, in a way. You know, it's like it's as, its like as edgy now as This Life was then, and I'm like, man, these people are still doing that stuff. That's just unbelievably amazing, um, and. Yeah, we 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 have a lot to thank it for, my goodness me. Did the 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 offers come in very very quickly then after this line They did for they did. Yeah, I mean suddenly Yeah, they did. They really did. I mean it's like we all pretty much worked pretty non-stop for I mean li- I, look, I mean I don't touch wood. We're a, a superstitious lot, of actors. But until COVID, <laughs> um, I I've been very fortunate to work pretty consistently, and in and in some ways, I got my. I mean, listen, I got my entire grounding in how to work in front of a camera from those two years because we we got so much experience in such a short space of time, and so it was like the combination of you know if if you're in the hot show, then people just want you because you were in the show it's sort of but at the same time we also got i mean we were not the finished article by any stretch of the imagination in our next few jobs. in fact, I wince in horror at much of the stuff that i some of the things i did subsequently but not all at all but but we did have a lot of it for people of our age after one job like we we'd done a lot of we'd had a chance to play a lot of different emotions and moods and all sorts and and it was so you know we did have something to bring to the next party whichever that what we were invited to um but, yeah, I mean, talk about a, a, a booster rocket. Yeah, it was big deal.
3: If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A
1: brand-new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world.
0: Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies.
1: And the second you
3: mentioned bisexual, just their ears pick up
2: contemporary conversations around
1: bisexuality
3: oh well you're still confused right no i'm not confused we are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay it's intense
1: pressure of like am i sure you're literally like monitoring yourself every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual britain this is bisexual
2: brunch available now wherever you get your podcasts
1: space
3: not so long ago in a time of intergalactic turmoil, the peaceful tyranny of the Galactic Empire is forever being threatened by evil anarchist forces.
0: What was that? Funny, anarchist forces have launched a surprise attack on the Suncrusher's outer defence crust.
3: Only the Sun Crusher space station can bring order back to the Empire. This is
0: not a drill, although they probably are using drills.
3: And only one man and one robot have the administration skills to keep bureaucracy burning bright.
0: You are so anal. I don't be ridiculous, Brack. I don't even have an anus. That's an exhaust port.
3: Meet Brack Nubar. That's my payslip, isn't it? It's completely blank. And X769C. My gang hobo has been engaged. Thrill as they take on giant brides and evil geniuses. She's beautiful. Really? She looks like a giant calculator on steroids. Gasp as they look death squarely in the face and then run away. Down a garbage sheet. I'm not going down there. Written and performed by Ian Mackness and Richard Delafield. Stop stroking yourself. It creeps me out. You don't get heroes like this. Kill me now. Just get it over with. Well, I do have this letter. Creep space. You okay now? Yes. So I can stop holding your hand? Yes. Available every Saturday on Distinct Comedy. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts.
1: A couple of years later, 1999, one of my favourite films you were in, which was uh, uh,
2: Talented Mr Ripley. There are very few movies anyone's ever made, to be honest, where you can confidently say, this will be being watched and admired as a, as a work of art proper. And I mean, I say I'm, I'm lots of the things I've been in barely qualify as art. (laughs) Uh, but that does. And, um, and it's for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, it was, uh, a very wonderful thing to be around. If you think of all the people that are in that movie, I mean, Jesus Christ. Um, it, it was, and to be directed by the much loved and lamented Anthony Mangella Like I'd never worked with a creative person like that before. Never, you know, because he was a, an amazing writer, a wonderful director. His music was this in, incredibly important piece of his whole process. And, like, the character I was playing was a musician. Like, it was... Like the whole thing was... And, and quite a contrast to Miles's character. Uh, just a bit. Uh, the yin to his yang, perhaps. And, you know, and that's... It, sure. And, you know, that's... It's a, another thing is that you... It's also when someone gives you the opportunity to perhaps play against some of the... Steri- you know, all actors get typecast in, to a degree uh, after a certain amount of time. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, unless you're Daniel Day-Lewis and there's only one of him, you know, it's like... And also, because, honestly, we've all got a degree of bandwidth that we're able to operate in without it becoming preposterous really so so that yeah the 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 complete r- contrast to certainly miles was a really lovely thing to be able to have a go at for sure and i mean the setting I mean, the oh film. dude i mean listen man i made a movie shot in rome palermo venice ischia uh, you know and we flew around italy staying in the best hotels in every city I mean it was off the hook and you know and it was not least because like th- th- even in those days big budget art, art it's essentially an art house film um they they don't get made they only get made if the director's previous film won nine oscars that's the only way it's going to happen and and so and so he was given a creative freedom to, to, you know, it's not cheap closing down, you know, the Spanish steps in Rome for a day or, I mean, it's, it's really complicated uh, and filming in cathedral. I, I, I shot a scene with Matt in, in that square in Venice, you know, with like tourists, like 11 deep around us. It was like doing like really expensive street theatre, we literally traversed Italy for months on end, going to these incredible cities and, and, you know, and, and we would film the scenes and there'd be like, they'd have to put ropes up and the tourists were like 11 deep. And then we kind of do the thing. And I, I just constantly, I was sort of, I mean, if anything, that job is the one that, you know, taught me how to keep my shit together in high-pressure public situations, because wherever we went, we were the biggest show in town.
1: And was that the first time you'd uh, met and worked with Matt Damon?
2: Yeah, completely. Uh, Any of them, really. And, you know, one of the things that I... I mean, you know, his unbelievable subsequent career has borne this out, but that's a terrible pun, I've just realised, about Matt Damon. But he's such a pro and and so and not in a way that sort of uh, it's not overbearing it's like it's not like we all have to you know everyone has to sort of it's not it's just he's quietly just relentless in a in a in a wonderful way and you know think how much he had to do in that movie and uh we in fact we um, there's a scene that was actually cut from the movie but they use the sound bed of it where he has a complete nervous breakdown in with me and just the uh, immediacy of how he did it in the, given all the other stuff he was having to do. And I remember just thinking, Jesus, this guy's an animal. He can just, uh, and then, and then you look at what happened to his life and career subsequently. And, you know, there's a reason why he, you know, like if he, if he was like an, uh, like an athlete, um, he you know like his trade value is is like he's what is one of the highest of anyone in show business and you and you look at how he um like he's always works with di- the same directors over and over again because people love working with him and and that and that you know No one's gonna go. Let's get that guy back again. I'd like to spend another six months of my life with that person who's impossible. Um, Of course, the other British actor who was in it, of course, was Jude Law. I I didn't shoot with you. I I actually I think I made two, if certainly two films with Jude, possibly three, over the years. And I'd made one with him before Ripley, so we were like already mates, and so we we hung around a lot during it. Um, and 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 actually, I remember like w- the, the first time Jude, Kate, and I saw the film, Anthony showed it to us at his house, and I was watching it. And you you know when you're seeing it, and it's like in that movie Jude is like, you know, like it's a, like he's as charismatic and gorgeous as like Paul Newman, quite, you know, like, like he's right up there in that movie. Uh, and, and I said to him at the time, you know, I was like, strap yourself in, mate, because you are about, you know, I mean, it makes out like I was so able to see the future, but you know it when you see it. And I was like, this is like, I mean, he was already very successful before then, but it went to a whole other level after that and rightly so he's you know it's you know to bring to life a character that everyone everyone talks about all the time and they're like he's this you know they talk about how charismatic and like it's like being close to the sun and all of that stuff it's like if you're playing that guy good luck you know and he just did it you know, and he's been doing it ever since. <laughs> my my favourite scene in that is well, I love all the scenes actually, but my favourite scene in
1: that is when they're in the in the bar and they're doing the the americano oh. music. It's fantastic, yeah, yeah. it's lovely, it's really really yeah. nice. Yeah. but the great thing about that film was like all best, all good films is when you go you go to the cinema and you don't know anything about it at all I watched that without knowing any of the twists and turns I've not read anything about it and there's so many great twists and turns in it it's just a brilliant, brilliant film
2: Yeah, but you know what, also the other, thing, oh, the last thing I'll say about it, because over the years I, I've I sort of realised this about it you know, when you go out and you shilling for a movie and you're, you know doing junkets and all that, you know you sort of develop sound bites about whatever it is and you know, blah blah blah, and one of the you know, time-honoured platitudes about literally, like, any, anything, is, you know, if you can find a way to go, oh, yes, this movie slash TV show slash play, whatever, you know, really explores some universal human themes, right? Uh, And the thing about Ripley is it really does do that, and it does, and it's a very specific one, but I think it's, it's so powerful because... It's, it's about it, it the universal human theme that I think it explores is one that we've all experienced, hence universal, but none of us like to admit, because it's really painful. And it is this, which is what it feels like to be excluded. Everybody knows what that feels like, even people who apparently are really popular. And it really gets to the heart of something deeply human and so to have this kind of gorgeous, sun-kissed, you know, uh, you know, almost poetic s- setting for something that's like, for everybody really, is, constitutes a kind of slightly dirty little secret about themselves, is that ache and pain of like not being in the sunlight. Because it happens. It happens to us all. And and I think that's one of the many brilliant things about that movie. But I think I've rarely met someone who, if they want to talk about that film, doesn't say at some point, God, it spoke to me. And sometimes they can't even articulate why. But I, that's why I think it is. But there you go. No, absolutely. I
1: absolutely agree. I mean, I, there the are two movies. There's that one and another one that you weren't involved in, which was, uh, again, which was great and spoke to me in lots of different ways, which was The Crying Game which I thought yeah, was another yeah. great film in that sense, you know, surprising yeah. all along the way. So in your... Um, obviously, you've done lots of lots of other things since then, but so, just but you seem to talk about talent to Miss Ripley very, very affectionately. Is that up there again with this life, then, in terms of the, the things that you've done? Uh, but
2: for for a completely different reasons, uh, uh, in the sense that... Mainly the reason is, um, in broad terms, uh, very few movies rightly so, should be considered like stone-cold classics, right? They're rare for a reason. It's really hard to make a movie, one, and it's even harder to make a movie that somehow stands the test of time. And for reasons to do with, at base, Anthony Minghella's profound artistry, that movie is one of the only movies that I I've, I've been in a few movies that people really liked but like I like when I was at college I you know my degree is in film studies right I know that the film study students of the future will study the talented Mr Ripley it will be the stuff of film clubs for, for you know, for as long as there are projectors. And that's rare. That's a really rare thing. So that's why I sort of... And so it's, you know, I'm... It's always sounds so hollow, but I'm, you know, I'm honoured that I was in it. And I'm also honoured in it... I mean, it's a side note, but also because I spent a lot of time with Phil Hoffman on that movie, hanging out. And we, and we actually worked, I made another movie with Phil years later again, in which we did not appear in the same scene. And, you know, he's no longer with us. And I actually think in the years after Ripley up until his death, not that it's ever really possible to rank these things, but I think he's one of the greatest actors I've ever, I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of them. Um, and, and it, 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 you know, that's and it's it's a sort of deep sadness that both he and Anthony are no longer with us. But um, but there was something about the places that Phil was able to go as an actor and the like. Talk about an ability to explore some of the most unsettling and darkest. And also, he was very funny, but um, just what. An unbelie- unbelievable, unbelievable actor. One of the greatest there w- has ever been and ever will be, in my view. Fabulous. That's quite. That's quite some tribute. Um, in terms of your career, you've ended up
1: quite like quite a few British actors ended up settling in America,
2: right.
1: and, and you've done. And I know you've still done bits and bobs in Britain, and you've, yeah, you've yeah. You know the rest of it. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you feel as though... I mean, I'm sure you like America, you like making stuff in America, but is there part of the you that would still like to be living in the UK and making films in the UK, or do you think it's just not possible to
2: to do it at a certain level anymore? Um, well, uh, it, it is possible. And, and you know, uh, in the decade and a half that I've not lived in the UK... I have come back and I've done a, a bunch of TV series, a mu- few quite a few movies. It's not. It's not through. It, it's it's not as sort of as thought out as that. Really, it's it's sort of like you know. I started making a you know a bunch of pirate movies, which then that took five years of my life to film three of them because movie making on that scale takes a lot of time and then suddenly for the better part of five years I'd barely been in the UK and then you know then a bit like we was talking about when this life did what this life did suddenly that's doing something else and it's working in America and and you know I, I'm I'm an actor who has trying to. I'm trying to put food on the table, in ultimately, and I, um, you know, I, I found myself with an, you know, a decent calling card to try and kind of um, make opportunities for myself in Hollywood. And w- Hollywood and the UK—one is neither better or worse than the other. They could not be more different. But it's not um I, and and, you know, and sort of there's no sort of cultural sort of like I, I'm like ugh, I want nothing you know there's nothing it's not it's not like that and and also you know I have a child who was born in this the country I'm in now and has you know an American accent and uh both passports and and you know in America's been good to me and it's been good to my wife and it's and never say never I mean it's like who knows what will you know it's not but it's um it was never really a plan it was just sort of it just sort of happened and as I say things could change but it's not I didn't I wasn't like I was with a with some forensic eye going I don't think the UK is capable of producing the sort of work I mean no of course I didn't think that at all and and you know it's there's not really much difference you know you often get asked you know what's the difference it's like there's a bunch of hard-working people getting up at four in the morning and working till nine o'clock at night doing this thing pointing cameras at us while we do some behaving you know it's a bit weird the whole thing but I I love it when I get to come back to the UK and work. Um, you know, I am always, I'm, you know, I'm a proud British person, but at the same time, I think being able to move between both cultures is sort of, it's worked out for us so far. Um, I mean, look, uh, we live in a time where, uh, <laughs> I mean, my wife's just gone back to work shooting something here. But you know, it's a, it's it's going to be difficult for a while, yeah. And um, and you know, I also I got to do things. You know, I I, I mean, ludicrously, because no one in their forties should be making any debuts of any kind whatsoever. But like, I, like I made my Broadway debut a couple of years ago, and I was like, yeah, I, I that's a box I always wanted to tick, honestly. And you can't do that from South London um so it's sort of in many ways i've just you know i've been blown about by the wind because that's honestly that's the life of an actor one minute you're doing one thing and the next minute you're you've got to move your entire family across the country and on three days notice for the next six months that's how we live
1: you're um same age as me uh, you're hurtling towards
2: uh, towards fifty. <laughs> I can feel I can feel myself burning up on impact.
1: <laughs> Tim Tim Vincent, Blue Peter presenter, he's same age as us. Who I work I work with quite a bit. He's, he he coined the phrase hurtling, and I use it all the time now. Hurtling away to fifty. What about parts for people older people? You know, forty plus, well, in the fifties and sixties. You know what yeah. what kind of things do you think you'll get? Uh, offered and what kind of things actually would you like to do for to portray, to you know, an older middle-aged man, as it were?
2: I mean, look, historically, the, you know, the, the, the central protagonists of most movies and TV tend to be a bit younger for all sorts of reasons. That's just how it is. I think that, again, you know, with this with the kind of m- micro siloing of like you know i l- you know i look at my son watching youtube videos and and i'm like and a part of me as a man of my age is sort of appalled by it but at the same time i'm like if when i was 10 there had been whatever the thing i was momentarily interested in as a 10 year old boy there was as it were a television channel with a million hours of video where people are talking about exactly the weird little precise 10-year-old obsession I've got for this week, how could I not be watching that all the time? Now, as that relates to, like, scripted drama and comedy, I think, I mean, the business model is changing. You know, it's like the streaming giants are becoming the bigger players and their, the whole thing is new subscribers so it's it's a different like what they're trying to achieve is different but i also think they understand that you know if if digital media has taught us anything it's that there are subgroups of subgroups of subgroups and People over the age of 50 hardly constitute a subgroup. They constitute the majority of people alive on the planet, quite honestly. Now, do I think I'm, you know, my near 50s are going to coincide with a golden age of film and television for people of that age group? Well, I doubt it. I mean, look, I... I grew up in this business because of my folks. I had a father who worked for 60 plus years, right, as an actor. And consequently, I'm under no illusions about what, how stories are constructed and where characters, you know, over 50 fit into that. That being said, um, you know, guess what? I know more about myself now than I did then. I've also got, you know, decades of experience doing this. And, you know, one of the things that I still deeply love about what I do is, and it, you know, to take this back to the beginning of our conversation, when we, when I was doing this life, I had like barely any competency at all because I'd never done it right now I know I'm competent I, I know I know I sort of know what I'm doing in that arena and I I sort of it's a very different feeling to to back in those days and you know I whilst I know I'm kind of waffling in some ways in answer to this question, but it's sort of, you know, I know there is a place for telling stories about people who perhaps do know something about themselves. You know, part of the end, one of the engines of all drama is people don't know themselves very well. Uh, And hence, you know, the capacity for change or bad decisions or whatever the hell it is. But there's a flip side to that and yes you know uh i will uh be you know i've played i mean i've been playing dad since i was 29 um you know uh and and things come up where you're like you know there was a job that i was very interested in doing back in the uk in the theater and, you know, there was lots of discussion about it. And then I have to say, quite rightly, they went with someone who's 10 to 15 years younger than me. And it make, and it sort of makes sense, really, for that. It does make sense. And it's not like that happens all the time. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of there's also just more things being made than at any time in human history. So on some level, um, I mean, look, talk to my wife, she's never worked harder. Uh, and, and, you know, and historically getting old has been even more brutal for women than it has been for men. And to my pride and delight, and also no great surprise because I think she's amazing at what she does. Um, I've watched her, you know, like it's soaring in ways that she's done in the past, but it's like, and in some ways it's to do with the fact that she, of the accumulated experience of her own life, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I also understand that people who make, tell stories need people who know themselves as well. It's like, you know you can't just have um harry potter doesn't make any sense without grown-ups um there's always some grown-ups in a story because otherwise it's just people float this life had grown-ups for god's sake right so you know i'm not prepared to entirely call time on my prospects quite yet Got a great hinterland and that's important definitely. I, yes, that's a very good title for a memoir I may steal it. What would um, you know
1: if they suddenly decided right okay you know we want you to come back again and do and do miles and Anna and everybody together what you know if they did that and they won't do that I'm sure but what they if they did that imagine ima- let's be in, let's use our imagination a bit Where would
2: miles be do you think at this at this time in his life? Thrice divorced? Alone, living in a in a studio apartment, surrounded by IKEA furniture, somewhere on the Pearly Way, uh, you know, wondering where it all went wrong. I imagine <laughs> that would be would great to explore, actually. To be honest, it, it 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 would. I mean, you know, the phrase "flogging a dead horse," uh, and also the at this point. Once the producers approached Andy's agent and realized what his quote now is, since he was the main guy in The Walking Dead for nearly a decade, they'd be like, okay, forget it. It's just, we can't afford this. You couldn't have this life without egg. No, um, and, and look, honestly, I, I think you'd probably get a hard no from all of us at this point. It was It was self-indulgent enough to go back for one time round Ten years later, and as we've discussed, I was more than aware of my own levels of self-indulgence in in agreeing to do it and I think you know it's good to I mean we've had this conversation I've d- I did one interview for The Guardian when apparently the show was like 25 years old uh, this is probably it <laughs> you know I don't I just you know it's like you know. It's a TV show, but but as we've discussed, it 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 holds a place in my heart, frankly, that not a lot of jobs that I've done did because it it had it did other things in my life that I that aren't just to do with punching in and punching out.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it holds a place in my heart and everybody, most people in my generation, I
2: think it seems to. Uh, although I'll leave you with this thought. I did a show in the UK about three years ago and we had a very ta- very talented young director uh, for some of the latter episodes and I was talking with one of the actors one day and he sort of joined the conversation and uh, the subject of this life was somehow and we talked for a bit longer and the guy went, he went, yeah, I remember my parents watching that and I was like, sorry? And I went, hang on, how old were you when it came out? And he went, six and I was just like okay all right and now you're my director so if that's a quality piece of humbling by any measure
1: Jack it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you about mainly about obviously we could have talked about loads of other things but this life and talent of Mr Ripley especially um, fantastic stuff lovely to talk to you
2: all right mate you take care nice to talk to you too
0: Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin. So my first encounter with Dusty Bidden was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was and I was frightened of course but as it went on I was like oh this is my new best friend (laughs) and I was one of the lucky few that actually had one in their bedroom. Kathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary the telephone operator. Halal halal. I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers or maybe I was their first female crush or something but I meet men some of them quite powerful now who grew up watching me. of watching Rosemary, rather, but I thought this is nuts. And they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do. Everything was always rhyming. Some you call the police department, talk Hong Kong, and that's that's what I thought Rosemary
2: would sound like.
0: And John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons. It was really one of the great ensemble TV shows. I mean, we had eleven regulars, and although the story was told from John Boy's point of view, one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the little. Kid, one week, or it could be about the grandparents. So you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it. And so I would call it first and foremost a great ensemble. These programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening, and bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.